India's opposition leader Rahul Gandhi calls for a national lockdown as the official number of new daily coronavirus infections in India continues to break records. The future of gun ownership in the United States is under review at the US Supreme Court in a case that could have significant implications for the Second Amendment right to bear arms. And the Colosseum in Rome is set to get a new floor. We'll bring you the gladiator's view of one of the world's most storied landmarks before the end of the programme. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today, here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Tuesday the 4th of May and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto and with us today to cast their expert eyes across some of the day's news are Monocle's Europe editor at large, Ed Stocker. He's in Milan for us and from New York City, Monocle's correspondent there, Henry Rees Sheridan. Henry, Ed, great to have you both with us on the programme today. We are at the start of another week just about, so how are things shaping up for you there? in Milan so far, Ed? Uh, Very good, thank you. I've just had a quick hop uh, at the start of this week over to to Lake Como for a piece for our sister publication, uh, which is, of course, Confect magazine. So I wasn't hanging out with George Clooney, uh, but I I was (laughs) visiting a very lovely Como hotel uh, for the next issue of that Confet magazine and sort of enjoying some wanderings around the lake. Um, so very nice to be there and get out of the big smoke for a day. I'm now safely back in, in Milan, but it was nice to get a bit of uh, lake air for a day, certainly. Sounds idyllic, Ed. Hope you sent us a postcard. And Henry, how are, how are things uh, shaping up for you there in New York? Couldn't be better, to be honest, Thomas. I um, got my second jab last night. Oh, congratulations, uh, Henry. Thank you very much. Uh, So I'm feeling, in a word, immune. (laughs) Um, Got it at City Field, the uh, home of the Mets baseball uh, baseball team, and and received a baseball-themed sticker saying that I've been uh, immunised. So that was a a bonus, to be honest. Not the main point of going there, but certainly a welcome bonus. They love a sticker in the States, don't they? Just anything, a a jab, you voted, you get a sticker, everything. And to be honest, Ed, what's not to love? (laughs) <laughs> Indeed. Well, Henry, one of the biggest vaccination centres here is the biggest theme park in Canada, which is about an hour away from Toronto. So I'm hoping when my time comes, I'll get to show up there and hopefully there'll be like fun theme park themed stickers. But I shall keep you posted on that. Henry Rees Sheridan in New York and Ed Stocker in Milan. Great to have you both with us on the programme today. India's leading opposition leader Rahul Gandhi has called for an immediate national lockdown as the crisis brought about by a second wave of coronavirus infections continues to deepen. Official figures from India claim that more than 220,000 people have now died and 20 million infections have been recorded. But there is a widely held belief that both of those figures are significantly lower than the actual toll COVID-19 has taken in India so far. Monocle's health and science correspondent Chris Smith explains some of the reasons for the current situation in India for us on the briefing today. It's made difficult in India for a range of different reasons, not just uh, numerical ones. Population is the big problem. 1.3 plus billion people in the country, but 50% of them have no toilet. And if you use access to a toilet 
as a proxy for living standards. This is very much a work-to-live society, a very divided society, a very impoverished society for many of those 1.3 billion people. So when you have public health manoeuvres like are being used in Britain to control the problem, stay at home, quarantine yourself. You can't do that in places like this. And when you've got people living in the sorts of population densities that some people are being forced to live in, then as soon as you get one case, we know the vast majority of cases of coronavirus transmission occur in the domestic setting because where do you spend most of your time? Where do you spend your closest personal contact time with others? Where do you spend time eating, sleeping and so on? It's in the home. So unsurprisingly, if you've got lots of people in very high density in relatively poor living conditions, you're going to get lots of cases and people can't afford to then isolate themselves to stop themselves giving it to other people because then another problem kicks in. They go bankrupt or they can't afford to eat. And then, of course, their children suffer. No one's going to let that happen. So as a result, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Dr Chris Smith there, Monocle's health and science correspondent, speaking to us on today's edition of The Briefing. Uh, Henry, we've spoken several times on the programme about the international aid that's been pledged to India. Do we have a sense at this stage of how effective the international aid that has been arriving so far has been uh, in the current situation in India? The international aid has helped significantly but there, there have been impediments to its effectiveness. The biggest impediment uh, isn't uh, uh, actually uh, the, uh, uh, necessarily a, a shortage of any given resource, uh, but the uh, infrastructural resources that are required to disperse them, distribute them over the country, uh, you know, India obviously is a is a vast, vast country with an enormous population. Um, most of its oxygen manufacturing facilities are in the south of the country, and that creates a shortage, uh, or has led to a shortage in the north of, of the country. And it, it is very difficult to get the oxygen up there quickly enough. The Air Force has been enlisted to carry canisters uh, up to the north, but you know, there's there are there are there's vast ways of the country which which are not served uh, particularly well by uh, road networks for example um and and this is a, a major impediment to getting the aid which is coming into the country uh, to to where it's needed um now interestingly to fill some of these gaps in terms of um coordination of the distribution of aid uh, organic networks of, of uh, have 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 cropped up on social media, both among Indians within India, but also uh, transcending the boundaries of the country and and enlisting Indians living in the global diaspora as well. And there's been an enormous effort on the part of ordinary people who are not in official positions to alert uh, uh, aid agencies, uh, in some cases even government officials, in some cases even opposition politicians, to where the resources are needed and to get the, the resources to where they're needed. So there's an enormous effort on the part of obviously the government, on the part of foreign governments, but also on the part of unofficial uh, organisations, unofficial networks of people who are all contributing to the information distribution effort to make sure that the resources are being distributed more effectively than they, they are currently being. 
Well, in a story that's running parallel to that situation in India, a little earlier today, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi met virtually with the UK's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, to announce a new trade partnership between the two countries. The historian Shruti Kapila at the University of Cambridge in the UK explained the significance of today's agreement for us on The Globalist today. It's interesting because, of course, you know, relations between Britain and India are deep, but they've not always been even or particularly warm or close. Uh, So unlike, say, the U.S.-India relationship, which has seen an upward turn, the Indian-UK one, you know, for whatever many reasons, including imperial legacy, lack of understanding, prejudice, it hasn't really taken off in, in the way you could have imagined it might have, given the historic ties. But I think this is a turning point because there's a kind of political will on the side of both Johnson and Modi to make it work. And the announcement of the trade deal is significant. Dr. Shruti Kapila there speaking to us on today's edition of The Globalist. Um, Ed, both uh, Narendra Modi and Boris Johnson have in their respective parts of the world uh, made quite a a big statement about uh, this agreement that was agreed to today virtually between the two of them. But how noteworthy in your mind is the deal that's been announced today? And I suppose, do you think that the domestic political pressures that both Modi and Johnson are experiencing in their respective parts of the world at the moment. Has any of that played into, do you think, at least the optics of what was unveiled a little earlier today? I mean, obviously, this was, you know, a while in the pipeline. But I think what you can definitely say is that, you know, both... Uh, these leaders needed a win. Uh, you know, Boris Johnson facing this, what's been named as this sort of sleaze uh, uh, issue by the UK press uh, in his, uh, you know, in the UK. And then you have obviously Modi, who's battling the fact that coronavirus numbers are uh, are spiking out of control uh, and who has recently lost a sort of battleground in in a recent election. He lost uh, West Bengal. His BJP party uh, lost there, even though actually, historically, it's never won uh, there. Having said that, this is being, yeah, projected as a sort of win uh, for both sides. The fact that £240 million is being invested this is sort of what I wanted to pull out as something interesting, by India's Serum Institute. And basically, they want to set up trials and possibly even production uh, uh, for uh, uh, vaccines and the like in the UK. Uh, The UK is sort of touting the fact that some 6,500 jobs uh, could be created uh, by this deal. Having said that, it is worth noting a few things. First of all, this is not a free trade deal. This is an enhanced trade partnership, which is basically agreeing to lower than usual tariffs. At the same time, India is in discussions with the EU about a free trade agreement. Uh, They've actually been having discussions for a long time. Uh, They collapsed uh, a few years back, but they've been reopened. And obviously, if the EU gets a free trade deal, that would be one up, if you like, on the UK. Also, sort of looking at the nitty gritty, looking at the details of, of, of some of these things, obviously, that job creation is great. But also, some of the things you think, well, less important, for example, British uh, fruit, uh, can now be uh, exported 
uh, to India uh, for the first time and, you know, things like apples and pears, etc. But if you look at like what that's worth, the fruit and vegetable industry is worth about £1.3 billion of the economy and the, uh, and the total value of that economy is over £300 billion. So it's a very small uh, fragment. Uh, we know that Boris Johnson and his Conservative government since Brexit, since leaving the EU have been extremely keen for uh, trade deals. And obviously, it's, uh, you know, you know why that would be the case. They need those new alliances and agreements with countries after leaving such a huge trading partner like the European Union. Uh, We know that you know, India is, of course, uh, important, but it's not, you know, it's not the big one. Uh, really, what Johnson would like if he was really to sort of claim a, a huge victory would perhaps be to cement uh, this US trade deal. And you may remember this was on the table and being discussed when Donald Trump was president. There was sort of shock and horror about some of the concessions that the UK may have been willing to make in order for that to happen, like the introduction of of chlorine-treated chicken uh, to the UK, which, of course, made lots of uh, scaremongering headlines at the time. But, you know, since Joe Biden's come into the presidency, he hasn't really committed to that. Uh, He's been sort of dodging that one. So I guess Johnson will be hoping that although India's a step in the right direction, he can get something like a big win, like the US under his belt, rather than further away destinations like India or Australia or New Zealand. The US is still the big ticket, I think. Well, next here on the late edition, the US Supreme Court last week agreed to hear a case that could have deep and lasting implications for gun ownership in the United States. And on today's edition of The Briefing, the political scientist and commentator Robert Spitzer explained the potential significance of the case for us. I do believe that the Supreme Court would not have taken this appeal in the first place if it were not for the fact that at least five of the nine justices want to begin an effort to roll back some gun laws and want to expand gun rights into the public. They could rule narrowly that would only affect the New York law, but that to me is a less likely outcome than a broader ruling that would seek to do something that has not existed before, that is to say to extend Second Amendment rights in some manner to the public sphere. And I would add that ironically, America's gun law history really is the reverse. Even though people think of America in the 19th century and the 18th century as kind of the Wild West, the fact is that by the end of the 1800s, virtually every state had strict laws against carrying concealed weapons. Yet this Supreme Court seems to be poised to want to try and carve out a Second Amendment right for Americans to carry guns in some respect in public. Robert Spitzer there speaking to us on the briefing a little earlier today. Ed, do you have a sense of why the US Supreme Court agreed to take this case, which, as Robert Spitzer outlined there, centres on a specific uh, gun law. It's an appeal to a gun law in the state of New York. I mean, obviously, yeah. The I mean, specifically, it was a couple of individuals who were basically suing for the fact that they weren't able to get uh, these permits to, to carry guns outside the homes. New York currently needs you to show proper cause uh, in order to be able to do that, making it virtually impossible to do so. As you know, Tom, 
uh, having spent lots of time in the US and of course Henry who's based in New York New York has very strict uh, gun control laws at the moment but you know broadly speaking we can say that this um, is in large part to do with uh, the previous administration the fact that Donald Trump was in power before and, and the Supreme Court has has definitely shifted to the right it's become more conservative don't forget that Donald Trump uh, was able uh, to to have three nominations to the Supreme Court. Neil Gorsuch, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and the most recent, of course, with the passing of Ruth uh, Gainsbourg, was, of course, Amy Coney Barrett. And all three of those are defenders of gun rights. And so with the Supreme Court being essentially highly politicized and you know we've seen over the years how it's fought over between republicans and democrats the fact that it is at its most conservative for many years means that of course uh it's more likely that conservative rulings will will, will go in its favor and the fact that it's agreed to take this up is you know is, is a big step because it's been over a decade i believe since uh the supreme court was prepared to take up anything relating to the second amendment and so this is a big moment uh, in the U.S.'s history, and and sort of really uh, runs counter to 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 what's happening in the U.S. Not just the obviously stream of of mass killings that we've seen recently, but also there are plenty of polls that say that the majority of Americans would welcome more gun control. That's the odd thing, you know. It's not really keeping in step, possibly, with the American public. And we also know that you know unlike his predecessor, Joe Biden, was really elected on a ticket of, 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 of trying to increase gun control laws. And he's been trying to do that, including executive action on the so-called ghost guns, which are basically untraceable weapons that are often made from kit. You know, this executive action trying to introduce serial numbers to all those different parts of that kit to make sure that any weapon is, is therefore uh, traceable. But of course, it's been hard historically in the past. And, and you know, Barack Obama had this problem as well. It, it, it's tough to get legislation through, even the fact that, uh, you know, the Democrats have a, a majority in the Senate. It is razor thin so that while they may pass legislation in the lower house, House of Representatives, it will always be a much harder task in the Senate. So, yeah, a key a key moment coming up in the U.S.'s history and one that seems to be rather different to the direction in which Joe Biden is trying to push Tom. And Henry, Ed touched on the idea of what public opinion in the U.S. seems to be saying at the moment towards increased gun control. How is the Supreme Court's decision to take this case playing out in a place like New York, which is what this case centres on, where you are, uh, but also more broadly, would you say, in the press on either side of the spectrum? I think the response has fallen along broadly predictable partisan lines. Uh, Democrats are pretty universally horrified at the idea, uh, I think, of, of gun laws being loosened, uh, particularly in New York. I think there's a real sense here that, you know, in... in in the prospect of a, um, of a of a conservative majority Supreme Court ruling on a New York uh, New York gun carry laws uh, is really kind of like conservative pro gun uh, advocates taking the fight to the kind of liberal heartland. Um, 
And I think that's causing a, a large amount of anxiety. Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, has come out and said that the streets of New York are not the OK Corral. Uh, and carried on saying the, the National Rifle Association's dream of a society where everyone is terrified of each other and armed to the teeth is abhorrent to our values, which is uh, a pretty unmitigated condemnation of, uh, of, of the pro-gun agenda in the state. I think it's also worth uh, pointing out that this is coming at a kind of weird moment in the history of the National Rifle Association, which is, of course, the largest... Uh, gun advocacy uh, organization in the uh, in the US. The organization is currently uh, facing uh, a legal challenge in New York. The Attorney General Letitia James uh, is trying to shut down the organization and get back millions of dollars that that she alleges was misspent, and it. By the organisation, and it does indeed seem that the uh, that, that Wayne Lapierre, who was the longtime NRA chief executive, uh, really badly mismanaged the organisation's funds uh, uh, over the course of years, uh, concealing personal expenses as business expenses, and and actually the NRA are now filing for bankruptcy in New York in a desire to avoid uh, uh, essentially these legal challenges. Um, so there's this it's, it's kind of this like. Um, it's this kind of weird, mixed, mixed moment of mixed fortunes for gun rights advocate in the U.S. in general and in New York in particular at the moment. Where on one on one side they have this potentially, in their eyes, empowering Supreme Court case coming up, but on the other hand they are facing significant trouble, completely caused by their own uh by their own uh mismanagement and their own misbehavior essentially uh so i think it's uh it's a confusing and and slightly fraught time um for both sides of the of the gun rights debate at the moment in america well, finally, here on the late edition today, a winning design has been unveiled to build a new floor in the centre of the Colosseum in Rome. Its goal, so Italy's culture ministry has said, is to give visitors the same view as gladiators would have had as they entered the Colosseum for battle. Well, before we get your responses to the winning design, Ed and Henry, let's hear from the journalist Megan Williams, who spoke to us on the line from Rome on The Globalist today, and she explained where the Colosseum original flooring had gone. During the Renaissance, ancient Roman ruins were all throughout the city of Rome, and including the Colosseum, were essentially turned into quarries and stripped of pillars, marble, facade, anything that could be reused to build Renaissance churches. So it was both natural causes and human beings coming in and stripping it that did away eventually with the whole floor covering of the Colosseum and exposing all of these um, tunnels underneath. The journalist Megan Williams there speaking to us on the line from Rome a little earlier today. Um, Ed, this, this new flooring is expected to be complete by 2023, I believe. And I did, before we spoke to each other today, watch the, the simulation video of how this new floor, the new design for the floor, will function. And it felt to me, watching the simulation, that there was a real magic to what has been designed here. Maybe you can outline what this new floor will, will ultimately look like. You, you just got moved by the promotional music that went with it. I know you. I, I think that's what probably I'm, happened. I'm a sucker for a string quartet, <laughs> I can't lie. 
<laughs> uh, no, it is. It is an amazing project, actually. I have to say, it it is really beautiful. A Milan-based firm where I am uh, is doing this project, and like you said, it will be completed in 2023, costing 18 and a half million euros. Um, the cultural ministers kind of called it this intelligent conservation. Basically, what it is that round uh, floor area in the middle of the Colosseum, uh, as that clip alluded to, is currently all exposed. You can see all, all, all the sort of passageways underneath, and the plan is to basically cover that with the flooring. But it will be made from this acquire wood and it will be made of slats. And because it's made of slats, it will basically allow you to do with it as you wish. So you could have it completely flat, looking like a conventional floor. But then, of course, you can open these wooden slats uh, to to then uh, uh, allow light uh, into those those passageway areas below and, of course, allow people to see down um, uh, below and see the sort of workings of the Colosseum. So you could be in a situation where you have part of the floor closed and part of it open. Uh, there's also going to be this sort of new ventilation system to control uh, the atmosphere underneath and uh, and I guess to better preserve uh, those those areas underneath this new floor. And also, uh, water will be collected as as part of this new system. Rainwater will be collected uh, and will be sort of used throughout the site, including in the Colosseum's bathroom. So a sort of intelligent solution in more way than one, sort of eco-friendly as well. Uh, and really, I think, you know, it's this light, beautiful wood that I think would pass an aesthetic test at Monocore, so an exciting project. And Henry, the precariousness of adding something back or, or even adding something new to a, a landmark as well as old but as recognisable as the, the Colosseum is, without stating the obvious here, this is, this is quite an interesting mix of ideas of preservation but also of design as it is now, isn't it? What, what did you make of the, the plans for the, the Colosseum's new floor? I really like. I think it's really tasteful um, uh, from a design perspective, and it seems to be relatively low impact in terms of uh, you know they've said it's going to be fully reversible. So if they want to return, if they want to re- take it away, that's possible. I'm really interested in different approaches or philosophies of uh, preservation um, around the world. I think in Europe, there's this very deep-seated idea that preservation is about conserving the uh, original structure, the original materials of a given uh, artefact or building, uh, so that it is as close to uh, the... Uh, not only as close to the original as possible, but actually the thing, you know, the thing that was installed itself uh, uh, to to the greatest extent possible. And we'd rather have a set of authentic ruins, right, than like a reconstructed, um, like 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 a structure that that looks like the thing when it was first built. But this isn't the case all over the world. Um, in in Japan. Uh, there are Shinto shrines, which have been around for, well, I'm not a historian, but like a, a very, very long time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm not very good with dates. <laughs> Fortunately, I can't give a specific one, but they, and they get rebuilt uh, uh, on a cyclical basis. So every 20 years, for example, 
Okay, they're they're systematically deconstructed uh, and then and then rebuilt in a in a very similar spot uh, in a ceremonial fashion. And these shrines are considered to be the same shrine. If you get what I'm saying, when you go there, you are you are considered to be visiting the same shrine that existed there hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, but none of the materials are the same, uh, and that represents a completely different idea of preservation. Um, which is 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 fascinating. I think the fact that as 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 humans we can have such a, a wide variety of approaches to conserving uh, uh, physical infrastructure from the past. Well, Henry Rees Sheridan and Ed Stocker, that is all I'm afraid to say we have time for for today's programme. A big thanks to the two of you for being with us on the late edition today. Today's programme was edited in London by Sam Impey. A big thanks to her, as always, too. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of Monocle on Design, which premiered here on Monocle 24 a little while ago. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>